You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I follow a lot of femme prodoms on Twitter. I mean, a lot, a suspicious number. Mistress Matisse, Domine Yuki, Savannah Sly, Justine Cross, Lady V. I'm not a client. I don't book sessions. I don't follow them for the hot photos or the video clips or the foot worship content. I follow them mostly for their politics. The real pros out there, the working pro doms, as a group, they're really fucking smart. I don't mean that to sound patronizing, but you know, a lot of people look down their noses at sex workers and think they're not smart enough to do anything else. And I'm pushing back against that at the risk of sounding patronizing because I know it's not true. And the proof, if you want to find it, is all over Twitter. The prodoms I follow, they post a lot of really fucking interesting stuff about politics, about feminism, about the climate, their own takes, articles they've read, sometimes articles they've written along with the kink pics and the fetish content. And I'm here for that, or I'm there for that, whichever that would be. Anyway, when I was an adolescent, when I was an at-risk youth myself, way before the internet came along, there were these things called magazines. Some of them were porn magazines, and a lot of men who subscribed to one in particular, Playboy magazine, they liked to say they read it for the articles. They didn't subscribe for the Playmates or the Centerfolds. No, they read it for the articles. They got Playboy for the articles. That's what men said. They said it so often it became a cliche, but it was plausible. A lot of people read Playboy for the articles. I know I did. When I was 15, my older brothers, they had stacks of Playboy magazines and penthouse magazines. And I read them each month, cover to cover, little gay me. I was reading them for the articles. I was very careful not to accidentally open the centerfolds. The advice column actually in Penthouse Magazine, Ask the Madam, was written by a woman who had done pro-dom work and other kinds of sex work, Xaviera Hollander. And she was a big inspiration for me when I started Savage Love. My column, my whole attitude towards sex, really, it was shaped by Hollander, a pro-dom. Both mags, Playboy and Penthouse, had advice columns, but Playboy in particular, they had lots of stories that weren't about sex. They published stories by big-name authors, and getting asked to do the Playboy interview, that was a big deal. Civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. did the Playboy interview. Malcolm X, movie stars, writers, politicians, people who were running for president all did the Playboy interview. Jimmy Carter, when he was a candidate for president in 1976, famously admitted to Playboy that he had committed adultery in his heart many times. Anyway, I read Playboy back in the day for the articles, and today I follow prodoms for the politics, for the observations, for the links. And one of the prodoms I follow, Goddess Charlotte at Kinky Barbie Dom, she did something last week, announced something on Twitter last week that I really admire. She announced that anyone who wants to visit her dungeon has to be vaccinated. I can't in good faith bring a non-vaxxed person into my dungeon space. It's nearly August 2021. Get your shots. In a follow-up post on her really terrific, very well-written blog, Goddess Charlotte writes, My application process is simple. Supplicants must send a clear photo of their vaccination card along with a clear photo of their ID so that I can have peace of mind when considering them for a booking. As soon as I deem the supplicant is a good fit for me, I destroy all emails and photos. I have the right to refuse service to anyone I deem unfit to enter my space. If you don't like it, get vaxxed. 
Seems to me, at this point, anyone who controls any space, a dungeon, a restaurant, an office, a city, a country, needs to follow Goddess Charlotte's example here. It is August of 2021. No one should be able to go anywhere, inside anywhere, if they're not vaccinated. Yes, requiring vaccinations, requiring vaccine passports, which is essentially what Goddess Charlotte is doing here, that's going to piss some people off. And those people are going to direct some of their anger your way. But seems to me our politicians, our elected leaders should be as brave and as clear as pro-dom goddess Charlotte's being here. A lot of men who go see pro-doms are politically conservative. You know, the kind of guys who aren't getting vaccinated for really fucking dumb reasons. There's a story I have opened in front of me right now in Politico about people who aren't getting vaccinated because, quote, they are mad Donald Trump lost the election. Okay, sure, seems to me that if you're mad about Donald Trump losing in 2020, you might want to live long enough to vote for him in 2024. But whatever, you do you. The only way the rest of us, however, can get these people vaccinated, the only way to save them from themselves and protect the rest of us from them, it's going to be to make them. And since not everyone is going to visit Goddess Charlotte's dungeon, although everyone should, we're going to have to require vaccinations everywhere. And it turns out that maybe I'm not the only one out there following pronouns on Twitter for the links, for the smarts, for the observations, for the insights. Maybe the president of France and Germany's chancellor and the mayor of New York City are too. Because after Goddess Charlotte announced that she would be requiring vaccine passports, France followed suit. And Germany announced it would soon be adopting vaccine passports. And now the mayor of New York City is floating the idea. Nice to see politicians, presidents of France, chancellors of Germany showing the common sense and resolve that I've come to expect from pro-doms. From the days when I was reading Xavier Hollander's column at Penthouse to now, when I read what the pro-doms have to say on Twitter. All right, coming up on today's show, I had a fascinating conversation with Ina Park, author of Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science History and Surprising Secrets of STDs. It's a really great, fun conversation, yes, about sexually transmitted infections. You're going to love it. And don't forget to pre-order Savage Love from A to Z, my first illustrated collection of brand new adults-only essays celebrating the 30th anniversary. Oh my God, the 30th anniversary of Savage Love, the advice column. Go to savagelovecast.com slash shop to pre-order your copy. Today, books go on sale September 21st. And now, today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm a bisexual woman calling in with an unexpected success story. My girlfriend of about four and a half years is a veteran. She's been out of the service for a couple of years, but she still gets really triggered by loud noises, especially fireworks. And I knew there was going to be a big fireworks display in our city last week. I have a recording studio for my job, and I found that it can also double as a safe space during fireworks because it's relatively soundproof. So I thought the fireworks were going to take place around 11 p.m., and I had set everything up, and around 10 p.m. we thought we'd go up to my bedroom and have sex, and we'd be nice and relaxed, and then go into my studio and watch a movie. So somehow I got the time of the fireworks wrong, and so there we were, completely naked and very turned on, heading into my bedroom when we hear the first bangs. My girlfriend froze, and I guided her into the studio and put on some music. You know the romance trope, there's only one bed? Yeah, well, it's a small studio, and there was only one chair. 
She's bigger than me, and I know physical contact usually helps. So I sat on her lap, and there we were, both completely naked, on top of each other. And she kept pulling me against her and making these growling noises. So I was like, babe, are you triggered or turned on? I'm kind of confused. And she was like, uh, both? I don't really know what's going on. So I just let her take the lead. As the dissociation subsided and she came back into her body a bit more, her grinding against me got more and more insistent. And finally, she was like, okay, fuck this. Let's just make it fun. So we pulled out the strap-on and the lube, and we just had the hottest sex in the one chair in the tiny studio. (laughs) Her emotions were running super high, and she fucked me so passionately and roughly with all the hot, dirty talk that I love and the fun pain stimulus, pinching and biting that I adore as a masochist, and we were both just having the time of our lives. And she even let me get down on my knees and pleasure her, and that doesn't often happen because she's more on the stone side of the spectrum. And every once in a while, we would just stop to look into each other's eyes and just appreciate how fucking much we love each other and how damn attracted we are to each other. And it made me so happy to reclaim that moment and even reclaim those heightened emotions that are usually really negative for something that was so hot and fun and deeply connecting for both of us. And at the end, she was like, yeah, I don't hate fireworks anymore. I can't wait to do this again. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing your terrific sex success story. And thank you for There's Only One Bed, a TV trope I was not aware of. A couple of characters checking into a hotel, the last room available, just one bed, forces those two people to share a bed. It is a trope, not one that I was aware of, but one I was happy to learn about. And congrats to you and your girlfriend. Little exposure therapy, create a new positive association, carve a new neural pathway. Your girlfriend likes fireworks now because of the fireworks you two created together at the same time. Great sex success story. We like to start each week's show with a sex success story before we get to all the sex and relationship problems. If you've got a good one and you want to share and you want us to open next week's Lovecast with your sex success story, give us a call. Hi, Dan. 32-year-old dude on the East Coast here. About three years ago, I got out of a decade-long relationship. um, And ever since then, I've been dating around, um, but nothing too serious has taken hold. I've generally only dated people my age uh, or within a few years of my age. But this winter, I met a wonderful woman uh, who is 22, and we've been spending a lot of time together, and we feel strongly about each other. She generally seems to date older guys. We got we get along great. Uh, we have similar interests. You know, the sex is fantastic. But my first question is this. Is it ridiculous or stupid or kind of unwise to emotionally invest in somebody so young? I've never dated somebody with an age gap like this, and I'm honestly taken a little off guard. Uh, by how into her I am. Yeah, anyway, I asked her to be monogamous after six months together, but she's hesitant um, and hasn't been in a monogamous relationship for a while. Uh, She says if it's the choice between being with me monogamously and not being with me at all, she'd rather stay with me and be monogamous, but I don't feel comfortable kind of putting my foot down like that. It feels like holding the relationship hostage. I don't know, what's the line between holding a relationship hostage and just kind of being clear about your boundaries and what you need, you know? 
anyway, when we were first hanging out, her hooking up with other dudes didn't really make me that anxious or insecure or whatever. But at this point, it really does. Is this a shit or get off the pot situation? Should I just be patient and see if she comes around to wanting monogamy on her own? Or should I tell her that it's kind of either monogamy or nothing? You know, I don't love the way that feels, but I also don't love the way it feels when I know she's getting with other dudes. You know, I would be open to being in an open relationship later with her. um, But at this point, I feel like it would be nice to be monogamous, kind of form a foundation of trust and stuff. And she knows that I would be open to being open uh, later. But, you know, hey, she's 22. She's young, gorgeous, very charismatic. And I'm not really surprised that she doesn't want to be monogamous. But I'm just wondering if this is like, are we just mismatched or should I stick with it? She's 22 years old. She's an adult. If she wants to be with you, if monogamy is the price of admission that she's willing to pay to be with you for the time being with the understanding that you may be able to wrap your head around an open relationship at some point in the future, you can let her, as a fully grown-ass adult woman, make that choice. You're allowed to have a preference around whether the relationship is open or closed. You should express that preference to this woman as the relationship has gotten more serious, as you've developed deeper feelings for her. What was either working or tolerable for you earlier in the relationship isn't working for you now. You're not taking the relationship hostage in any way that you don't have a right to take a relationship hostage. When you tell her that if she wants to keep seeing you, you're going to have to close the relationship, at least for the time being. It's a kind of funny hostage situation in a way you're taking the relationship hostage, but not her. You're being clear about your boundaries. You're being clear about what it is that you want and need if the relationship is going to continue. She is free to go. And then you're both free, I guess, to kill the fucking hostage together, to end the relationship. If you aren't willing to pay her price of admission, if she insists on it remaining open and she isn't willing to pay your price of admission, if you insist on it closing, then you kill the fucking hostage, which isn't her, it's the relationship. You have a right to want what it is that you want. You have a right to tell her that where you're at emotionally right now, you got to close the relationship or move on. The bigger issue here and what you seem to be wrestling with and conflicted about is whether you're allowed to have deal breakers, whether you're allowed to identify the, you know, the prices of admission that you expect or want the other person to pay to be in a relationship with you. And you are absolutely allowed. That can feel, and I think you know, the debate we're having or the cultural conversation we've been having about a culture of consent and about avoiding coercion in relationships, there's an angle that you can look at that from where it feels coercive. If you want to be with me, you have to do X. This is something I require in a long-term committed romantic relationship. Well, I guess it's unavoidable. On some level, that is on its face coercive. Someone might choose to stay with you, agree to do X, X may make them very unhappy, could even make them feel violated. If that were the case and that person were calling me, I've agreed to do X or agreed to this kind of relationship because I really want to be with this person, but it makes me miserable, makes me feel violated, trauma, then you need to end the relationship. Then that's obviously too steep a price of admission for you to pay to be in the relationship. But each of us has to decide for ourselves. What are the prices that we will pay to be in a relationship that are reasonable, that don't leave us feeling violated? And then if we want to pay that price, the person who asked us to pay that price, 
needs to allow us to pay that price, needs to take yes for a fucking answer. So go to this girl, go to this woman, this fully grown ass adult woman that you're dating, tell her how you feel. And if you get a yes, and it seems to come from a genuine place, take that yes for a fucking answer. Hi, I don't know how to be okay with my wife having sex with other people. She had someone over a few days ago and she gave me oral sex in the morning on our couch. And then she did the same with a woman who came by in the evening. And I don't know how to look at her and not feel pain when I look at her. And I don't know how our sex is going to be special when she's going to be doing some of the same things with other people. I'm sorry. This is really hard for me. I can understand it in a, like a intellectual kind of way that people still have desires for other people even when they're married. And I can understand it in that kind of way, but in a, in a feeling kind of way. Sometimes it just hurts to look at my wife and I just, I don't know how not to feel everything I'm feeling. And I don't know how you guys do it. I guess what I'm asking is how to how to be okay with my wife having sex with other people. Obviously, this is too steep a price of admission for you to pay to be in this marriage. If your wife having sex with other people in what sounds like the most inconsiderate, bordering on cruel way possible, makes you feel terrible, then perhaps an open relationship, an open marriage, isn't right for you. You ask, you say, I don't know how you guys do it, referring, I think, to me and other people in open relationships. And I wonder why you're doing it at all. Doesn't sound like it's coming from a healthy place. Sounds, we don't have all the details, sounds as if you may have agreed to opening a relationship under some coercive degree of pressure. Maybe your wife made it clear that this was something that she required to stay in this marriage and you agreed to it because you wanted the marriage to survive. But if this is how you feel when your wife fucks other women and if this is how your wife is going to fuck other women, not discreetly, not some DADT agreement that – in a sense, honors where you're at about open relationships. As an abstraction, you are capable of wrapping your head around the reality that, of course, even married people are attracted to others. And you can be very deeply in love with someone and have wonderful sex with that person and still sometimes desire sex with others. You understand that intellectually as an abstraction. But what your wife did, bringing someone to your house fucking her on your couch in the same way that she had fucked around with you earlier that day in front of you doesn't honor where you're at with this, that it worked for you as an abstraction and your wife made it such a unavoidable tactile reality really rubbed your nose in it. And what sounds like, again, inconsiderate bordering on cruel and just incredibly selfish and I find myself wondering if that's not contributing to how upset you are, not just that your wife had sex with other people, but that she did it in this way, that there's the sex with other people and then there's the cruelty. 
I would encourage you to tell your wife that if it's going to happen in the future, it can't happen like this. That being confronted with the reality of it is too painful for you right now at this moment. So you want, if she requires an open marriage, if she has to have the right to have sex with the people, if that is a deal breaker, price of admission that she is requiring you to pay, you will pay it, but you're going to pay it a little differently. It's going to be DADT relationship, but don't ask, don't tell. And eating somebody else's pussy on your couch in your living room in front of you is a tell. And so she's not going to be able to do it like that. She's going to have to do it at a time and in a place where you can be blissfully ignorant of of the fact that it's happening at that moment. And if she can do that, maybe if she can show that kind of consideration for your feelings, and there's a lot of consideration for the other person's feelings that go into sustaining you know, the plausible deniability that you aren't fucking anybody else when you have a DADT relationship with someone, an arrangement like that with someone. If she can show that kind of consideration for your feelings, maybe you'll grow to a point where it can be more like she obviously wants it to be. But not now. And if she can't do that, if she can't give you, she can't dial it back at least to a DADT or close it down, return to monogamy for six months or a year as you work toward a DADT, I would advise you to get the fuck out of this marriage, not because your wife wants to sleep with other people, not because your wife is sleeping with other people, but because your wife doesn't care about how you feel about sleeping with other people or about much else from the sound of things. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old bi guy in the Midwest. So I went to a trial event with the only local nudist group in my area. I got a list of conduct rules to begin with, including no sex and making sure everyone feels comfortable, which sounded good. One guy, he's almost twice my age and he's in like group leadership, spent the whole time near me talking and often mentioning sexual activities to kind of gauge my reaction. He uh, even followed me when I tried to move away from the group. It seemed like he wanted to separate me from them told me that he's known for lightly touching others, then rub my back and raise my butt like at the end. I told him that was not okay, but he continued to bring up sexual activities at previous events, even though they're not allowed. He also rubbed my back and chest at the end after we were clothed. Overall, the event was good, but he made me feel very uncomfortable. A couple weeks later, I hung out with uh, some guys from the event, and they agreed that he was acting kind of creepy. They also told me he wrote an article for the group about the event. And in that article, he mentions a guy that caught his eye. Then he describes my physical features, including my dick, and makes a joke about not groping me. This group is the best way to engage in social nudity in my area. But since he's in leadership, he will often be at events. What do I do, Dan? I don't have a history with the group, so it seems weird to come in and immediately start tearing things apart. I can also walk away without losing too much, but I don't like being driven off because of that guy, Um, especially when I hear the rest of the group is cool. I can also join and keep my distance, 
But I think that will still be pretty awkward, especially because we're naked. What do you think? What should I do? If this group is the best group in your area to hang out with other people naked, I have to assume it's literally the only group in the area where you can hang out with other people naked. Because almost by definition, a group of people, a group of nudists, who would tolerate the presence of someone who behaves the way this guy does can't be the best group unless it's literally, again, the only group. Complain. Write to the people who organize this event, who run this group. Send them the link to what he wrote specifically about you and about your dick and detail how he behaved toward you in front of other people at this event. And if they don't bounce him, if they don't, even though he's in leadership, hand him his pants and show him to the door, then you don't want to be showing up for this group's events anymore. It's not a safe place. It's not run by a group of people who care about maintaining it as a safe place for this kind of social, non-sexual public nudity. So I would encourage you, if it's not the only group, if there are other groups, to check those groups out. I would also encourage you to make some fucking waves in this group, to go out swinging, complain. This guy shouldn't be allowed to take part in these events and engage publicly in this kind of predatory behavior and then write what he did after the event, singling one other attendee out, talking about that person's genitals and how much he wanted to grope them. Yeah, no, he's got to go. That seems, you know, if your version of events, if your accounting of events is accurate, abundantly clear. And if it's not clear to the people organizing this event, if it's not clear to everyone else, to the group, the collective that would have the power to show this guy, even though he's in leadership, out to kick him out, to bar him from future events, then you won't be safe at future events, whether this guy's there or not, because some other guy's going to come along and ruin it for you and ruin it for everybody else. If there's no mechanism in this organization, if there's no ability within this organization to keep guys like this guy out. Hi, Dan. I wanted to let you know that I was excited to hear the term sexual. I hadn't heard that before, fray with an F, because I do tend to lose interest, and it describes me. And actually, I've been trying to figure out how to present this at the beginning of a relationship that, yeah, this is most likely going to happen to me probably going to lose interest in you. Been dealing with illness my entire adult life. Been taking lots of medication this whole time, which surely inhibits my sex drive. So I'm not always interested, uh, but, but sometimes I am. And I would like that. And the way, the way I talk about it is like, I don't always feel like eating cheesecake, but I enjoy it when I do. So any, any advice on this and how to present it to other people? I'm getting to know myself, and then I can be more honest with others and uh, would certainly appreciate your help. All right, I'm going to walk something back. Perhaps I have been unfair to phrasexuals and the phrasexual community. A phrasexual is someone who loses interest in a person sexually after they get to know that person. When the relationship becomes intimate or even loving, they're 
desire for sex, their interest in that other person sexually goes away. And I may have referred to that once or twice as something we used to call being an emotionally stunted asshole. Uh, and it seems like there probably are some emotionally stunted assholes out there who are incapable of forming long-term commitments. But there may be people out there. I think there are definitely people out there who this term helps them understand themselves, very sexual, that they aren't cut out for long-term relationships, that indeed they lose interest in people sexually and romantically the more they get to know them. And just like asexuals, you know, when the asexuality movement really began in earnest about 15 years ago, 20 years ago now perhaps, one of the issues uh, around asexuality, but people not having this term prior to, you know, 10, 15 years ago when people began to really talk about it and the, the movement began and people who identified as asexual started coming out as asexual, was there was a problem with a lot of people who were asexuals getting into relationships that they thought they wanted or they thought that they should want with people who were sexual, who we now call allosexuals. And this being not great, kind of being an engine of conflict, you know, people who were asexual, no interest in sex or very little interest in sex, gray sexuals in relationships with people who were typically sexual, normally sexual, even hypersexual. And that not being great, again, being an engine of conflict, conflict around sex, how much sex or whether there's going to be any sex in that relationship at all. And if people understand themselves to be asexual, if they understand that's a sexual orientation, a sexual identity prior to entering into relationships because they've heard about asexuality, they've heard about and from people who are asexuals, well, then we live in a world where people who are asexuals are less likely to not figure that out until they're 10 years into a marriage with someone who is sexual. Not that people who are asexual can't form relationships with people who are sexual, but if you're going to go into a relationship like that, for that to be public, for that to be acknowledged, for both people to be able to talk about it and figure out how the sexual person's needs are going to be accommodated without the asexual person feeling coerced or being pressured to be more sexual than they might like to be, it's going to be healthier relationships, whether there are asexual, allosexual relationships or asexual, asexual relationships. And I guess I have to allow for the same thing here, that people who are phrase sexual, we have a call, going to play it at the end of the show from someone who says that she learned that about herself through trial and error and now she knows not to make long-term commitments. That's good. We don't want people who are incapable of making a long-term commitment, assuming that that's what they should want or should attempt, that kind of self-knowledge prior to making a commitment or prior to entering into a sexual relationship with someone who might expect that you were considering them for a long-term commitment. Yeah, that's good. Good to put that out there. Good to not let people make assumptions about who you are sexually that may apply in most cases, but don't apply in your case, whether we're talking about asexuality or asexuality. So you wonder how to tell people. And the answer is you just fucking tell people. What a lot of folks mean when they ask, well, how do I tell people this is how do I tell someone this without being judged, shamed, rejected, without there being potential consequences or an outcome I might not desire? Well, you can't control those things. Tell the truth about yourself to other people that you're interested in romantically or sexually, and then they get to decide for themselves whether they want to sign up for you. And you can't control that. 
But what you don't want to do, what's manipulative, what's assholery, is to allow people to make reasonable assumptions about you or assumptions that are reasonable that don't apply to you. If you're initiating a sexual relationship with someone, they're not going to think you might be asexual. They're going to assume quite reasonably that you are sexual. If you begin to date someone and begin to fuck that person and see them for months, they're going to assume that you are whatever the opposite of a phrase sexual is, that you are interested and capable of something long-term. If you know that not to be true, you should inform that person in advance. Don't let people make reasonable assumptions that in your case do not apply. That's manipulation by omission and it's not okay. Dan, I have a question for you. The last podcast, you talked about phrase sexual. I've never heard of that term before, and I'm glad you introduced it. My question to you is, what is the difference between phrase sexual and someone who has Madonna whore syndrome? Seems like there's a lot of overlap. People, mostly men, with Madonna whore complexes, uh, Sigmund Freud said, see women either as saints on pedestals or as whores. Not everyone who's very sexual has Madonna whore, has a Madonna whore complex, but I think there may be people out there with Madonna whore complexes who are very sexuals. I think the Madonna whore complex usually plays out and someone can be sexual with a person in a certain way if they don't care about that person. They see that person as, you know, they see sex as degrading uh, or degraded and they don't want to do that with someone or they can't do that with someone that they love and care about. They can't do this disgusting, degrading thing. And that's a, a sexual hang-up. That's a, a problem that person has with sex. That's not necessarily the same thing as just, you know, really enjoying sex, really enjoying the people that you have sex with, feeling free to have the kind of sex that you enjoy with the people you enjoy having it with, and serious hang-ups uh, in which you see sex as this disgusting, awful depraved thing that then you can only allow yourself to do with people that you look down on, people you hold in contempt. And I think that's where the difference lies. I don't think people who are very sexual, I don't think people who enjoy being with, you know, having a, a series of relationships over the course of their lives for however long they last, hold their sex partners in contempt. That is the distinction here where we see the difference, I think, between People who identify as very sexual and people who struggle, people who have a problem, people who have Madonna whore complex, who suffer from that syndrome. You know, a fun and healthy person who identifies as very sexual, I would have sex with that person. A person who has a Madonna whore complex, who sees their sex partners as disgusting or depraved or beneath contempt and therefore is unlikely to treat their sex partners – very well, whatever they're interested in doing in bed. Yeah, I would not want to have sex with that person. Hi, Dan. I have a friend who is in her 60s, and almost a year ago, she let me know about someone who approached her on Instagram and loved her photos. She is a wonderful woman and has so much to offer. However, he is in his late 40s, supposedly, and the photos she has shown of me are obviously stock photos. This is a very handsome man who is a model and this is not a real person. I have asked her if she has FaceTimed with him. She said yes. He supposedly lives in Australia and is an architect. The stories just don't add up. So she showed me a photo today and 
I pulled out my phone and took a screenshot of it. And she said, don't do a face search of him. He doesn't have a LinkedIn. He doesn't have his Instagram anymore. And I'm sure that she knows that he isn't real, but he calls her multiple times a day, supposedly. And he keeps promising he's going to come out. It's almost every month. And then he can't make it for one reason or another. I love that she is glowing and very happy. However, I really want to find a way to ask her if she's sending him money or if she really has met him or if he's even real. I would love your advice. Would it be so awful if she was sending him a little bit of money rather than going to her and saying, don't send this person that we both know is fake any fucking money. You might have a better outcome if you went to her and said, I understand that this relationship this online relationship and online relationships can feel real and they can actually be real. I have some people out there. I consider very close friends that I've never met in meet time. I've never met face to face. We met on Instagram and we chit chat and I like them and I like what they bring to my life. I like the attention that they pay me. I like our friendships. Maybe she really needs this attention. Maybe she needs this kind of affectionate attention affirmational attention and it has some value the service this guy who i am sure as you are does not exist and is lying to her about who he is but does it matter that he's lying it would be better if he wasn't lying to her about who he is we have to wonder about his motives and be on guard uh, about his motives she needs to be on guard about his motives but if he's asking her for 50 or 100 bucks once or twice a month and she can swing it, maybe it's worth it. If he's asking her for her bank login details, if he's asking her to sign over property, if he's asking for thousands and thousands of dollars, if the amount of money he's asking her to share with him or lend him or float him is growing over time, well, that of course would be a problem. And maybe it's a problem that you could help her be on guard against if you don't go in swinging wanting to shut this down because you know what she knows and that is the guy is a fake. There are lots of people out there paying for a little bit of romantic or sexual or affectionate attention from strangers online. From people who send a little bit of money to all those crazy fin doms on Twitter to people who go on OnlyFans accounts and, and, and tip the the performers to people who hire sex workers to give them a girlfriend experience, in some cases a boyfriend experience. And maybe what your friend is getting from this person is a little bit, you know, in her old age, a little bit of a girlfriend experience. And I think you could have a more constructive conversation with her about safety. If you validated that need for that boyfriend experience, sorry, that she's getting from this guy, and just encouraged her to get what she can from this relationship, to enjoy what she does about it, but to be careful not to send this guy money or not to send this guy an unreasonable amount of money, which is what we tell people who are fin subs, which is what we tell people who have ongoing contact, personal contact with performers on OnlyFans and other sites. So I completely agree with you. The guy doesn't exist. The guy's lying. It's a question. It's an open question as to whether your friend is being played or whether your friend 
from this relationship is getting some play that she values. Values to a point where maybe she could put a dollar amount on it even. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Ina Park, professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and author of the terrific new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Hey, Ina, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for jumping on the phone today. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your book. You went with STDs in the subtitle, but there's sort of been shifting around what to call these things. It was VD, then mm-hmm. STDs, then STIs. Can you explain that evolution? Yes, and we uh, certainly had a back and forth about what to use for the subtitle. And um, actually, mostly what I use these days is STI. I mean, obviously, VD had those negative connotations of the word venery or sexual immorality. And we know that STI has happened to lots of folks. And then it evolved sort of in the 70s to STD. And now we know that um, a lot of these infections don't have any symptoms at all and just sort of come and go. And I think STI is the more sort of scientifically accurate. But the reason why we used STD in the subtitle is that, you know, there's still some folks that don't recognize STI as well. And we wanted, um, you know, the subtitle for people to understand sort of what the book was about, whether or not they were like a baby boomer looking at this or whether or not they were a millennial or Gen Z uh individual. So that's why we use STD. But to be honest with you, in my life, I use STI more. And just to define those terms, VD, venereal disease, STD, we shifted from VD to STD in the 70s, sexually transmitted disease, now sexually transmitted infection. And you say that that's because infection is less loaded a term than disease. And a lot of these things are not a problem for most people who have a sexually transmitted infection. Right. And you know, um, not only is it less loaded, I think it's more scientifically accurate. I mean, lots of folks have an infection and never actually develop a disease. And now to be clear, like the reason that the CDC still uses the term STD or sexually transmitted disease is that indeed a lot of these infections can actually cause real disease and really serious disease. But for the majority of folks, especially for things like HPV, I'm just going to throw out there, human papillomavirus, is an infection that comes and it goes and it doesn't cause any problems. And so I feel like if STI or sexually transmitted infection is less stigmatizing, I am all for it because I'm all about reducing the stigma around these infections. So let's talk about some of these infections. You opened with a really interesting story about herpes, basically Mm -hmm. its origin story. And I don't mean the origin of the disease, the origin of the stigma. There was a time, and it was a pretty recent time, where people thought it was no big deal. What happened? You know, I think um, the HSV or herpes simplex virus stigma, some folks have accused the media and pharmaceutical companies of sort of manufacturing the stigma because people say that there wasn't as much stigma around until we actually had a medication to treat it. So folks who I know who did work in this field, who actually worked on the drug development over at the University of Washington, said that people that actually had you know, symptomatic genital lesions certainly did feel stigmatized, but that things like the Time Magazine cover in the 80s that called it the new scarlet letter, for example, and, you know, said that people with herpes wouldn't be able to get married and wouldn't be able to find sexual partners, certainly, you know, added fuel to what might have been sort of a smoldering little flame. And um, and I think once we have the development of antibody testing, when a lot more people knew their status, there was also sort of a little explosion there in the stigma. 
And a lot of people were finding out when they were able to get tested for herpes that they had mm-hmm. something they didn't know they had that had never caused them any trouble. Exactly. They maybe had one outbreak that they didn't even notice because it was so minor and never had another one. But now they had the burden of knowing and, and the burden right. of whether or not to disclose this thing that because of the hype and the hype may have been tied to marketing campaigns around a, a drug to treat herpes that had been developed. They now had to, to, to sort of navigate dating and mating with this enormous stigma attached to what is for most people a non-issue. Right. And the label was much worse than the actual like physical symptoms, because as you mentioned, most people who actually have herpes antibodies don't have any idea. And that's why we have a lot of herpes in this country because people walk around unaware, you know, spreading the infection and shedding virus asymptomatically. But you're right. I mean, really, it's a skin condition. It doesn't cause you know, any sort of long-term consequences for most people. And so really the psychological impact is often much worse than the physical impact with this particular infection. You also write in the chapter on herpes that rates in the United States of one of the two strains, uh, HSV1, sometimes called oral herpes, yes. falling among the very young. And you identify that as a problem. Yeah. I mean, the the issue is, Dan, as you know, you know, lots of folks um, try oral sex first before they try any sort of penetrative sex, like anal sex or vaginal sex, right? And if you don't have any antibodies against herpes type 1, when someone gives you oral sex for the first time, they can pass herpes type 1 to your genitals. And then you have an outbreak that looks all the world, you know, the, the same as uh, herpes type 2. But most people who get an outbreak in the genital region, you know, from someone giving them oral sex will sort of have a one and done kind of phenomenon where mm-hmm. you'll have one bad outbreak and then usually it doesn't cause a lot of issues. But then again, if you, you know, were getting it from a from a cup or sharing utensils or from household contacts when you're young means that when someone gives you oral sex later, you will already have antibodies and you will not be able to get an outbreak in your genitals. And some people think as well that it might provide some cross protection against getting herpes type two. So that's why I, you know, I'm like we're sharing cups willy nilly in my household. I want my kids to get HSC one. So it's in the best interest of their genitals later in life. So uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading the book was meeting all these heroes, you know, people doing mm-hmm. research and it was a heavily stigmatized area of medicine. A lot of people didn't want to touch mm-hmm. it, kind of the redheaded stepchild of, of medical Absolutely. fields. And, and so meeting these people, meeting people who, who did the research, even when it was stigmatized, uh, developed treatments and cures, contact tracers, people out there fighting in the field, all of that was really terrific. You know, in some ways, STIs can really bring out the best in people. Also the worst, mm-hmm. you know, we've all heard of the Tuskegee mm-hmm. experiment where uh, mm-hmm. African-American men were identified in the South who had syphilis and allowed to suffer with that disease and the progression of it was tracked and they were never offered treatments even after penicillin came along was a cure. The scientists yep. just allowed these men to stay sick, get sicker and die. Um, mm-hmm. And you, uh, you know, I've heard of the Tuskegee experiment. I think a lot of people, who, particularly people who, you know, self-select to listen to my show, have heard of the Tuskegee experiment. I had yeah. never heard of the Guatemalan experiment. All right. Can you share a little bit about that with my listeners? Well, and funny enough, one of the main uh, researchers from Tuskegee also worked on Guatemala. So unfortunately, this person has a very um, long legacy of uh, uh, immoral and unethical uh, research. But at any rate, it's another government-sponsored um, 
STD study and by the U.S. Um, Preventive you know, Health Service, and they were looking in Guatemala. They actually deliberately tried to infect sex workers, soldiers, the mentally ill. They actually um, performed as well, like experiments, um, you know, with lumbar punctures, which are, you know, spinal taps on children without their consent. And so it was actually deliberate infection experiments, which is different than Tuskegee because Tuskegee, they actually took people who already had syphilis and didn't try to actually infect them with the, um, with the bug. Whereas in Guatemala, they actually tried to deliberately infect people um, without their consent. Um, you know, all of the, the Guatemala papers are now in the National Archives and are available to the public. And there doesn't seem to be any documentation of consent being obtained. And um, of course, Obama had to apologize um, for these uh, experiments to the Guatemalan government. And there are still lawsuits, you know, pending against some of the institutions in the United States that supported this work. Why? Why, why was this experiment on Guatemalan people conducted by the U.S. government? They were trying to look for better cures for STIs that would be helpful to the military because, as you know, Dan, you know, um, you know in the military, there's tons of STIs, especially when soldiers, you know, go overseas and um, there's a lot of you know, commercial sex work that goes on. And so the military has a vested interest in finding the best treatments, the fastest cures, you know what I mean, that will clear these infections. So it was really, um, you know, to the end of trying to find a new treatment. And unfortunately, despite all that unethical research on hundreds of people, they found nothing that was actually useful in actually treating, you know, Guatemala, or, I'm sorry, gonorrhea or syphilis, which was the point of going to Guatemala in the first place. All right, let's talk about that. It's really depressing. And I kind of want to just take, take a moment there to acknowledge how I know. D- distressing it was to, to, to read about that and feel right. some sort of collective responsibility for it as an American. But, but you mentioned yeah. syphilis, so let's move on quickly to syphilis. It's such a broad ranging book, you know, all throughout human history. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the chapter on syphilis, or there are multiple chapters where you address syphilis, but there was a there was a moment when it looked like we could eradicate syphilis down to just eight cases know, of syphilis yeah. among gay men in San Francisco in 1998. Now, 1,500 cases uh, yep. in 2019. Why weren't we able to eradicate syphilis? What changed that that prevented us when when it was so tantalizingly close? Well, and it, it's not just one thing, Dan. That's the thing is. You know, we got close, I think, with with HIV and AIDS. um, And, you know, I began my sort of undergraduate sort of training and medical training when we did not have good effective HIV medication. So a lot of people were still dying. People were afraid to have sex. There was a lot less condomless sex going on. And, um, you know, I think people were uh, a little bit more afraid of HIV. So I think the advent of effective HIV therapy made people sort of less afraid of, of that. And so then people were having, you know, more sort of unprotected or condomless sex. And then, of course, in like the late 90s, we had the rise of the internet. And um, I'm old enough to remember America Online, but there were <laughs> chat rooms, you know, where <laughs> where folks were meeting each other and hooking up because any sort of new technology that's developed, we figure out how to use it to hook up, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think the rise of the internet and um, certainly, you know, later on, so those two things, you know, combined sort of the change in HIV and then a change in our ability to meet and hook up online. And then, of course, you know, we have the rise of the smartphone and then we have now sort of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, which is a medication you can take every day, like a birth control pill for HIV. I have to say I saw this coming. 
you know, when the effective treatments <laughs> came along for HIV, yes. the La- Lazarus syndrome, guys getting out of their what mm-hmm. they thought would be their deathbeds and, and being restored to health, the calculus changed. Everyone's calculus changed overnight. The, the, the saying yes. then was it went from a death sentence to diabetes, to a lifelong right. illness that could That's be right. treated. And then along comes PrEP, and I got in trouble with some activists around PrEP for saying that mm-hmm. this would fuel a huge spike in sexually transmitted infections. You know, we got down to eight cases of syphilis among gay men in San Francisco in the 90s because people were still terrified and most people, not all people, but enough people were using condoms regularly to drive the rates down that low. And then everybody's calculus changed. And there was this boom in sexually transmitted infections, particularly among gay men. And it was sort of taboo to say it or to predict, I predicted, I was just like, I looked at when the, the drug cocktail right. came along and I was like, well, this is going to, a lot of guys are going to stop using condoms. And I got yelled at. And then prep yep. came along and I said, a lot of guys are going to stop using condoms. And I got yelled at some more. I but know, but you were right on both counts. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love to hear that. Just please, I was just like <laughs> trying to make somebody else say I was right. So it's not always me having said, no, no. Like what I'm, I guess driving at is just, there was this inability in the healthcare establishment and the activists, you know, AIDS mm-hmm, activists establishment mm-hmm. to acknowledge this emerging predictable reality and then right. craft health messages to address what was going to happen, not what anybody wanted to happen, but was going to happen. And I really feel like that was a failure of imagination, a failure mm-hmm. of, I guess I'm just cynical and other people were hopeful. Well, and I think everybody just wanted to focus on the positive and not, you know, oh, like you're such a downer, Dan, you know, let's not talk about the STIs and the, and the negative trade-offs of this really miraculous sort of intervention for HIV prevention. But, you know, we know, and I know, you know, you and I know the truth, which is that, of course, people are going to use less condoms because there are very few people who enjoy using them. And so if there's any opportunity and you're going to do the calculus, you're going to say, well, I don't have any risk for HIV, I'll take a little risk for syphilis. I'll take a little risk for gonorrhea or chlamydia. And that is what is happening over and over and over again right now. And it's not just about gay men. It's about men. No, Straight men were everybody. much more condom compliant, as the expression goes, before the pill came along. And then the pill comes Absolutely. along and suddenly straight men really don't want to use condoms anymore in the same way Absolutely. sort of that 50 years later, 60 years later, PrEP comes along and gay men don't want to use condoms anymore either. Well, and now straight, you know, like straight cis women, a lot of folks have implants, they have IUDs. And so what is the incentive if there's no fear of pregnancy? And if there's no sort of advocacy on the part of your partner to say you have to wear a condom, if that negotiation doesn't happen, then who wants to use a condom? You know what I mean? It's, it's of course, like more pleasurable to either bareback or have condomless sex. So I think the condom is, you know, absolutely embattled right now. <laughs> I think we need something. We need something better, more fun or more pleasurable or a next generation condom that is better than the one we have now. So we're coming out of if enough people get vaccinated, that's still an open question. Mm-hmm. Fuck the Trumpers. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns. At the beginning of the pandemic, yeah. someone called my show and asked, suggested that this was our chance to eradicate all STIs. If everyone's going to be right. staying home for the next three months, six months. <laughs> not fucking around, not meeting up with strangers for nope. sex. If nope. everyone could get tested and everyone who had an STI could get treated, we could eradicate not just syphilis, but them all. Did we miss a chance it's here? True. I mean, I think that would have been great if we had this like, you know, sort of mass home testing campaign because nobody wanted to leave the house. Like people were, you know, I work in a 
sexual health clinic in San Francisco and people were deathly afraid to walk through the doors unless there was something really wrong with them. So yes, had we sent out STI tests in mass to people's homes and then been able to treat people, I think we could have made a huge dent in the epidemic. But and then, of course, there were some people, Dan, like some of my patients who used sex as stress baking, you know, so they never stopped having sex. And in fact, they were managing their anxiety by hooking up more. But yes, I do think we missed an opportunity and it's too late. I mean, people are just back to back to business. Um, and even folks who held out, you know, for six months, 12 months of not having sex, they are back on their apps, they are hooking up, and things are just as busy as they've always been at the clinic. So you work at an STI clinic. There's something that's always mm-hmm. kind of drove, driven me, drove me up the wall, drove, drives me up the wall. People use <laughs> okay. this expression. You, you ask them if they're being safe, and they say, yes, I get tested oh. regularly, as if testing mm-hmm. is itself safety, as if testing confers immunity. I think are you responsible? I get tested regularly. That's an appropriate response right. to the are you responsible sure. question. But if you're having unprotected sex uh, and a lot of it, just getting tested right. after the fact, dodging those bullets, perhaps, uh, you know, everything coming back negative, doesn't mean you were being safe, does it? Right. I mean, it's really a risk management strategy. You know what I mean? It's certainly not a safety strategy. And, you know, I'm trying to use the term safe a little bit less with my you know, uh, patients and clients, because, you know, for certain infections like HSV, herpes simplex virus, and HPV, human papillomavirus, even if you use barriers, mm-hmm. you can get those infections anyway. So there's this, there's this sort of myth around the fact that using a condom means it is always safe sex, quote unquote safe. I think you can make it safer. Um, but, you know, there's, there's any risk inherent in having sort of sexual contact with anyone. And obviously, we all love it, which is why we do it. And I want you to do it. But, you know, I think this whole idea that I can behave perfectly and, you know, completely eliminate my risk is false. But you're right, Dan, like just, you know, getting on, it's like getting your oil change. I get my oil change every three months. That's not the same thing as actually, you know, doing all the maintenance on your car. So, you know, getting tested is wonderful. And I congratulate people who do that. But that's, you know, not the same thing as using barriers (laughs) at all. Now, now, I don't want people to get the impression just for this, you know, anybody's just popping into my podcast to listen to just yeah. this conversation. I think people have a right to take risks for pleasure. You know, people sure. who snowboard yeah. take risks, people who skydive take risks. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that humans do, chicken salad, a certain number of people are going to eat chicken salad this month and die from wisteria. Everything that's, right. that's pleasurable has some risk bundled in it. And that's true for sex too. Sex, because I think of sex negativity in the culture is the only thing that we single out and say, unless you can eliminate all risk, you shouldn't do this thing because there's some huge segment of the human population that just wishes everyone would stop doing this sex thing, except when they want to make a baby. And and, and I think that's bullshit. Like people have a right to take risks. And when it comes to HPV, when it comes to herpes, I think there's a risk benefit analysis there. And, you know, if you're going to have yeah. an active sex life that involves more than one partner uh, for life, then it's sort of the cost of doing business, the cost of freight. That's right. Is at least being yep. comfortable with the idea of exposure to these sexually transmitted infections and perhaps acquiring them. Yeah. They're hard to avoid, particularly if you're going to have sex with more than one person over the 70 years of your sexually active adulthood. And even if you have sex with just one person, if that person had partners before they were with you, then you absolutely can catch, you know, uh, H, you know, herpes or HPV from the love of your life. You know, your one, your one partner. But most of us don't, you know, 
sort of operate our sex lives that way. And so, yes, I'm really trying to shift our frame to one of acceptance. Like, hey, again, I actually, I think, I don't even know if I wrote that in my book, The Cost of Doing Business, but I say that all the time. It absolutely is. If you're going to be in the sexual marketplace, this is just one of the things that's going to happen to you at some point in your life. Right. Whether and, or not you realize it or not, it's going to happen. And you haven't done anything wrong. It's just, no. it, it happened. Now you get to do, I, I, I think, you know, after you get a sexually transmitted infection, that's where you reach the fork in the road, ethically, morally, where you can do right or wrong. You can right. get tested, you can get treated, you can notify your partners, you can contact people who you may have put at risk and encourage them to get tested and treated. Right. That's where right and wrong comes in, not getting a sexually transmitted right. infection in the first place. All right, two quick last questions before uh, I let you go. Yeah. One thing yeah. after writing this book that you hope everyone who reads it takes away from it. Okay, so... One thing is that I have this little manifesto at the end of my book, which I was trying to come up with seven words, sort of like Michael Pollan's, you know, like eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And I came up with, you know, have sex with people that you like or have sex with nice people. And the thing is, is having sex with people that you like, so I don't say love because I can't give advice that I haven't taken myself. And um, the other thing is, is that, and I can't say like, don't have sex when you're intoxicated because I can't, I haven't taken that advice either. So my point is, is that if you have sex with someone that you like, if an STI enters the picture, you are then more likely at least to let them know, mm -hmm. right? And let other people know and not feel so much regret. So the only thing I can shield you from is having a ton of regret. I can't shield folks from getting an STI. But, you know, if you have sex with someone that you think is a decent person, then I think you have less you know, uh, propensity towards regret. If you think that the person was kind of a jerk and you just did it because you were lonely or whatever, or you don't remember their name because you were so high or so drunk, when those folks I diagnosed with an STI, they have a ton of regret. And that, you know, obviously we've all been there and it doesn't feel good. When I read that in your book, I, it reminded me of something that I came to after, you know, being sexually active for a few years, which was just, I stopped yeah. having sex with people I couldn't see myself with, that I wouldn't date. That didn't yeah, mean I didn't have one night yeah. stands. It didn't mean I didn't act on right. impulse or, or get intoxicated. But if I was talking to somebody, I was just like, yeah, I would never want to date this person. Right. Then they were kind of out. They were disqualified. And it cut a lot of regret out of my life. Yeah, that's so smart. Right, Because the thing is, is you might have to deal with this person later. You know what I mean? Like you might have a hookup and then an STI might enter the picture, and then you might actually have to interact with them later. So if you don't want to do that, then probably don't hook up with them in the first place. There's lots of people out there. One last question. You dedicated this book yes. to your parents, a book about sexually transmitted yes. infections. <laughs> How did they react? How did they take that? Well, so my parents, and I, I actually put their sex lives sort of in the book as well, because they were, they had an arranged marriage, and they were both virgins. And so they were like, oh my God, you know. Um, they were fine. They were proud of me, but you know, they had a hard time because I was that person, you know, up in front of people dressed up as a giant condom doing a condom demonstration. And as a, you know, daughter of Korean immigrants, that is totally not okay. So they have come around, they accept me for who I am and now they're happy about it, but it took a while. It was a process. Ina Park, professor at the university of California, San Francisco school of medicine, author of the terrific new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Dr. Park, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was a really uh, wonderful conversation. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the book. It, it is entertaining, destigmatizing, and I think such a terrific resource. Oh, thanks. 
Dear Dan, I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller. I'm living with my boyfriend of three and a half years. We have a four-year-old, his stepson, my son, and an eight-month-old baby together. I'm calling to see what you think about an ethical issue. Last week, he admitted to a secret double life when I accidentally saw an unknown email address in the Gmail login window on the web browser. Apparently, for the last three years, he has been using a variety of cyber sex options, including frequent virtual BDSM, where he is the sub and he has various doms telling him what to do via video chat, WhatsApp, Skype, etc., he would be chatting and texting with them any for a moment of the day when I would go give baby bottles in the morning at his lunch break from work, even from our shared bed while I was sleeping. I also, at the same time, discovered various videos of him peeing on our bathroom floor and in various cooking pots and drinking the pee. I discovered these because he gave me the login information to that secret Gmail account and I looked through it. Dan, I'm super GGG, and we even practiced some um, kink together for a while, so I really don't want to be judgmental here, and I could forgive all of this stuff if I could just understand, I guess, his reasoning for being so secretive, but the main question I have revolves around something else. I left him with our seven-month-old baby for one week while I traveled international to care for my dad in hospice, and he subsequently died when I was there, and my boyfriend was alone with our baby, and I discovered when reading the messages in this cash secret email that he gave himself over to his main dom for uh, 24 hours a day virtually the whole time I, well, practically the whole time I was gone. And I saw the Dom said he would do nothing perverse while the baby was awake. So my boyfriend thinks I'm overreacting. But I'm still freaked out because the Dom had him, you know, doing dog impersonation and pissing on the floors inside the house, outside the house while the baby was awake. And he doesn't even know this person in real life. And he told him he had a, has a baby, his real name, his real age. Am I re- overreacting, Dan? Please help. I trust your advice and don't want to be kink-shaming my partner. First of all, yuck. Peeing on the bathroom floor, peeing in glasses and pods, drinking pee. Who cares? After a few beers, so much hot water. But What's transgressive about that, about the dom that your boyfriend was interacting with asking him to do that is these are the dishes that he shares with his family. And so in a way, you were included in some of this dom-sub play, that these transgressions involve transgressing against you. Ugh, that makes me uncomfortable. That is icky. I don't want to kink shame your boyfriend. You found out about this not because it had so spun out of control that he was neglecting your kids, neglecting you, spending so much money on these doms that he's interacting with online that I assume he's paying something that he couldn't make rent or there wasn't enough food in the house. You found out because of a Gmail address popping up. And so now he's confessed all to you. And there is something about a stranger on the internet ordering him around when he has some downtime and some time to himself that turns him on. Seems to me 
that rather than fight that and forbid that and then put yourself in a position of having to police that for the rest of your life, you might want to find a way to channel that. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to participate in it or feel good about it, but channel it in such a way that he can have this if he needs it or wants it without pissing in a glass that you're going to drink out of later, hopefully after it gets run through the dishwasher or peeing on the bathroom floor that if he's like most men, maybe he cleans it every once in a while, but probably not very well. So it would fall to you to clean that mess up ultimately whether you knew it was there or not. There has to be a way where he can get a little bit of this in his life without you having to wonder which dishes and your shelf have been brutally violated in a play scene with an online dom. For there to be some guardrails, some limits. The problem, of course, with establishing these limits is part of what turns somebody on who's into this sort of shit is transgressing against those exact same sorts of limits, which means you're going to have to extract a promise from him not to do the things that make you feel uncomfortable anymore and then trust that he isn't while at the same time kind of knowing somewhere in the back of your head that he might be. The relationship survives if you can successfully stuff that last thought all the way down the memory hole. My advice would be very different if he were neglecting you. My advice would be very different if you were neglecting or endangering the kids. Sounds like what you found when you looked around. He made it very clear that he could only be available to his little online dom friends when the kids were asleep, when he was free, when he had some downtime. Not all the time, not whenever they snapped their fingers. That's a good sign that he's able to limit and control this to some extent, to a reasonable extent. So maybe you'll be successful establishing more, further limits and controls now that you know about it. And I'm sorry that you know about it. It would have been better if he could have kept this to himself, kept this from you all his life. I believe that people have a right to some zones of erotic autonomy, even in a long-term committed relationship. This could have been his zone of erotic autonomy and maybe in our pre-digital, pre-internet universe, he would have found a way to have a little bit of this life that didn't involve basically people entering his home on his phone and ordering around in the space that he shares with you, that he would have gone someplace else for this kind of activity. And he never would have found those videos of him pissing in the pot that you make the mac and cheese in for your four-and-a-half-year-old. Ugh. Hate to remind you of the mental images and thoughts that I'm asking you at the same time in my response to stuff down the memory hole, but there we are. And yeah, my advice would be different. If it was neglecting you or endangering you, neglecting or endangering the kids, my advice would be to leave. But I'm not going to give you that advice in this circumstance. My advice is going to be to allow for it in a way, in a controlled way, where you don't have to worry again about every plate you pick up every day dish every glass that you want to have a drink out of and that he's scratching this itch getting this need met in a way that doesn't make demands on you but also doesn't involve you in these transgressions that he finds new ways for his old online friends to get him to transgress that don't involve your shared space or your shared cooking utensils hi dan this gender white male i uh go out with a five foot, a uh, little adorable Asian question for you today is pegging. We've had a wonderful relationship 
over the last two years. We're slated to get married. She's been quite consistent on pegging me. I'm just a little on the fence. I'm not entirely sure how it is. I've never done it before myself. Never really had quite an interest, but, you know, I care about her, her needs. So I just want to reach out to you and um, want to know what's, what all the hype is about. If it's something that I should give into her needs and her sexuality. She's been very opening for my needs and sexuality. So, you know, we listen to your podcast all the time, driving between different states with a long distance relationship. So if you could please answer this, this would be awesome. I think you owe her this. Just for describing her as a five foot little adorable Asian in your question, I think you owe her pegging, pegging your ass. Uh, I would throw this out there to anybody else, all my other straight male listeners who've been pegged, uh, particularly to any straight male listeners out there where the pegging wasn't your idea. Usually when you hear about a straight guy being pegged by the girlfriend or the wife, it was the straight guy who brought it up, who initiated that conversation. And maybe the girlfriend or wife loves it now and it's a regular part of their sex life now, but it was initially his interest that led them toward pegging. But I don't doubt that there are some straight guys out there with girlfriends who saw pegging videos or red pegging porn and they brought it up. This was a longstanding sexual interest of theirs. And now you've done it. Maybe now you're even into it. If you're one of those straight guys, give us a call, share your story. All right, you, caller, my advice for you, you know, getting your ass fucked, it's a, it's a big ask. It's a big leap, particularly for people, for male people who expected that sex worked a certain way, that they penetrated and the people they were with got penetrated. And your girlfriend is interested in flipping the script, maybe even flipping over the table. And so what do you do? Well, same advice I would give to a straight woman or a bi woman whose boyfriend was interested in anal sex and wanted to top her anally, wanted to fuck her ass. You build up to that very slowly. It also helps to engage in some solo play. I would encourage you to go get a couple of butt plugs, maybe even a vibrating butt plug and get the medium size. Don't get the little skinny ones that look like a finger with a broken knuckle. You want to get one that looks like a little bit like a lava lamp so that when it's in your ass, it stays put. You're going to have orgasmic contractions when you have an orgasm. Basically, I'm advising you to have some solo masturbation sessions with a butt plug in your ass. And what's good about a butt plug as kind of a bridge toy for a straight guy is that it doesn't look like a dick and it doesn't fuck you. It's just kind of a plug and you put it in your ass. You can set it and forget it and then start jacking off, focus on the porn you usually focus on with that slightly full feeling. And when you have your orgasmic contractions, which is where those butt plugs that look like fingers with broken knuckles are a problem, the butt plug will move a little bit. Your sphincters will contract around the base of the butt plug and it'll provide a little bit of pressure to your prostate. It'll move it a little. It's not going to suddenly start fucking your ass. Just a little bit of movement, a little pressure to the prostate during your orgasm feels amazing. If it's the finger-shaped butt plug, the broken knuckle, it's going to fly across the room. That's why you want the lava lamp-shaped butt plug. So it stays put. And if you have a bunch of orgasms with your anus in play, with your rectum stuffed with a butt plug, and you begin to associate a feeling of penetration, that feeling of being full with your own sexual pleasure, that'll make it easier to be able to wrap your head around your wife pegging you or if you're the girlfriend or wife, your ass being fucked, not just being about something you're doing for that other person but also at the same time something that other person is doing for you. 
The other piece of advice I give to women and, and guys, gay guys who are interested in getting their asses, by guys, getting their asses fucked for the first time is let them get in you, whether it's a flesh and blood dick or whether it's a peg, whether it's a, a dildo, whether you're being pegged, let them get in you and then breathe and relax and maybe jack off and have an orgasm. And maybe the first couple of times that you are penetrated anally with a dick or a strap on dildo when you're pegged, it's not about fucking. It's about getting it in you, breathing, relaxing and coming, you coming, you getting off and then slowly build up to that person moving, fucking you a little bit while you continue to stroke your dick. Watch some gay porn caller. Look at what the bottom boys do while they're getting fucked. They're stroking their dicks. That's a huge part of why it feels good for them too. You want to be like one of those bottom boys in the gay porn, stroking your dick while your five-foot little adorable Asian wife-to-be pegs the shit out of your ass. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of this week's Savage Lovecast tweets. Tech Weenie tweets, not sure if at Fake Dan Savage watches The Shy, but there's an excellent storyline about opening up a marriage and the resulting situations and emotions that come up. Dealt with in a realistic and frank manner. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I actually haven't watched The Shy yet, but I will definitely check it out now. Tech, thank you for the recommendation. Veggie Forever tweets regarding 769, episode 769 of the Savage Lovecast, the young woman who missed all the red flags. We need to address red flags in general. Young women are trusting and don't expect to get raped by their bosses. We need to warn them that the most likely rapist is someone they know already and someone who has power over them. Hashtag Savage Lovecast, a good and very sad and sobering point. Veggie Forever, thank you for making it. And finally, at Wyaduck tweets, a sign I am not well. I listened to all of at fake Dan Savage's intro about Ryan Andrew King. He's the Australian electrician who was cutting off guys' balls. Listen to that entire intro on the Savage Lovecast while eating popcorn chicken. You are a braver man than I, Wyatt Duck, with a stronger stomach. Thank you for listening. All right. If you want me to read your tweet about the Lovecast in an upcoming episode, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And we really appreciate everybody who tweets or posts to Instagram or social media about the show helps spread the word. And now, listener response calls. To the caller in episode 769, who was contemplating staying in the polyamorous relationship with the couple who's about to retire, I'm not an expert, but the situation she described sounded more like to me that she's dating a married man in an open relationship rather than in a polyamorous relationship. And maybe that's, you know, potato, potato semantics. But at the same time, renaming the situation might change expectations and make it a more sustainable situation for her to stay in long term. So maybe just a conversation about expectations and what the situation actually is would help. In response to the call in the most recent podcast from the woman who got dragged on the inappropriate work trip by her boss, uh, something that you mentioned that Dan kind of skipped over in his response that I think needs to be addressed is – your reluctance to uh, say anything or report him because what you experienced wasn't that bad in your words. And first off, I think you should uh, appreciate the fact that you really dodged a bullet. Stories that start like the way you describe often end in assault and in coercion, the end of blackmail. You know, could have destroyed your career or worse if things had gone differently. The most more things what he did was wrong, even if it could have been worse for you personally. 
you know, the fact that you didn't wind up curled up on the floor sobbing doesn't change the fact that what he did was unethical, was hopefully against company policy. And the fact that it could have been worse if your coworker hadn't called HR when she did, or maybe he just got too drunk or you just got lucky. No, the fact that you dodged a bullet doesn't change the fact that the bullet was fired. Hi, Dan. This is a response call for the guy who's dating two of his co-workers. You did what? You did what? You what? You did what? Why? How, how could you do that? These people have to work with each other. Are you joking? Are you fucking kidding me? You don't live in a sitcom. It's absolutely wild. Quit your job. Leave these people alone. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064 to record your question or comment, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hump 2021 is going on tour to select cities throughout the United States starting in September. These movies were shown already online last spring, but we all know how much more fun it is to watch Hump in person in theaters with a room full of strangers. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash tour to find out if Hump is coming to a city near you. And the deadline for submitting your homemade porn or erotica for Hump 2022 is coming up December 8th. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how to get your film our next sack lunch that's an online hangout exclusively for magnum savage lovecast subscribers is thursday august 5th at noon pacific time go to savagelovecast.com to become a magnum subscriber today get ad free extra long episodes with more guests and more questions and more answers access to the savage lovecast archives and you get to join me and other magnum subs for sack lunch follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow dr ina park on twitter at ina park md and follow goddess charlotte on twitter at kinky barbie doll the savage Lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech heavy at risk youth and nancy we'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the savage Lovecast. thank you for downloading